This is the Stanley Avenue Church of Christ podcast. We thank you for listening. We are beginning a new series study. Uh, we are in the book of Ephesians. This quarter, the first quarter of 2017, we're going to be studying through Ephesians on Wednesday nights. Uh, we met at 6 o'clock at our uh, base of operations here at 415 uh, Stanley Avenue in Andalusia. And uh, we would like for everyone to join us if possible. If you are unable to join us, you can always find our materials here on this podcast. Uh, we upload uh, on Thursday mornings uh, a recap of the material that we cover. Normally, what we do is we read through the text, and then uh, we make some pa- uh, comments from it uh, on this podcast. Now, this uh, first lesson is going to be an overview of the whole book. So rather than reading the entire book, I would just invite you to have the book open and we will be uh, turning to each section. Uh, the goal of this particular study, the our, our series of studies in certain books, uh, the goal really is just to get an overview of what the text is trying to say. Uh, we're not really going through word by word, verse by verse. Uh, we're not trying to spend all year just trying to uh, draw out all the meaning we can out of every single spot. Rather, what we're trying to do is just see the overview of it. And there are some great powerful themes uh, that are, are written throughout all the books, but here in Ephesians, there are some particularly um, uh, meaningful themes. Uh, This is arguably one of the most applicable books in our uh, scripture. Uh, Paul starts um, uh, by by just describing the salvation that we have, and by the end of the book, he's describing the way in which we can, in fact, combat the enemy. And uh, that is one of the greatest questions we might have. Um, number one, can how do we know or can we know that we're saved? And number two, what do we do? What what does God want us to be doing while we're here? Uh, and so this is an extremely applicable study. Uh, let's begin by noting uh, some of the uh, the initial issues like authorship and background. Now, uh, I'm not a history scholar, uh, but it's pretty evident, and uh, you can read many different sources uh, to agree that this was written by Paul. I mean, he states it right in verse 1, and we're not going to argue uh, over the authenticity of uh, this, uh, the passages of Scripture at this time. We're going to take it at its word, so written by Paul, and uh, written probably in the early 60s. Uh, it's the general consensus that uh, the early 60s was a time period in which Paul was in prison, and uh, we believe that he was uh, in prison during this time based on some of the things that he mentions throughout the book. He mentions being the prisoner of the Lord, for instance, in chapter 4, verse 1. So I I think it's reasonable to think that he, in fact, is in prison. And um, so a couple options, we could either go with the late 50s whenever he was in prison at uh, Caesarea and that we read about in Acts, or we could wait until we get all the way to Rome uh, while he's in prison uh, in Rome. So uh, either way you view it, it's uh, between the late 50s, early 60s, and he's writing again to the Ephesians. So uh, the church at Ephesus was established years prior uh, to Paul writing this book. Uh, we can read about that in the book of Acts. Paul did actually actually did not start this group. Uh, he first visited Ephesus whenever he left Corinth, and he left with Aquila and Priscilla, and uh, they came with him over to Ephesus. Now, he was on his way down to Jerusalem, and he felt like he needed to uh, keep on that direction. So Aquila and Priscilla, they are the ones who stayed in Ephesus and, and really taught and helped to strengthen the church. It's actually unclear uh, whether or not there was technically a church existing at that point because we know that Paul had desired to go uh, that way at the beginning of his trip but was hindered by the Spirit. Uh, but uh, 
the, the majority of the work was established initially by Aquila and Priscilla, and then Paul came about later and actually spent quite some time with them. We read in Acts chapter 19 and verse 10 that he, he stayed there for several years, um, so a significant period of time, and that's, that's a long time for Paul. Paul typically never stayed that long in any of his uh, journeys, but at Ephesus and Corinth, he stayed for quite some time. So he knows these brethren very well, uh, even though years have gone by. I mean, he's able to establish a rapport with them, and he knows them, and he knows some of the issues that they're going through. So um, it's worth mentioning, I think, uh, before we even begin the book, uh, beginning uh, or begin looking at its themes and its purpose, what are some of the issues that the church at Ephesus faced? Um, we know, and we're, we're talking about its earlier stages here, that we know that in their earlier stages— um, they faced questions over the work of the Spirit. Acts chapter 19 and verse 2 says that um, some of the, the men who were there uh, were still questioning uh, whether or not there was a Spirit. and they, they didn't realize how God gave salvation. And so we're going to find Paul addressing the Spirit in emphasis here in the book of Acts. Uh, we also know um, that uh, they faced, uh, the, the Christians in Ephesus faced uh, spiritist movements as something that they needed to leave behind, Acts chapter 19 and verse 19. Uh, many of them brought their books, um, and the consensus there is, again, these are related to some form of mystic knowledge or magic or perhaps uh, spirit worship practices. Um, their pagan religious works, they needed to leave those behind, and they brought those books and they burned them. So you know that that's in the history in the past of what these uh, Christians have uh, have dealt with, and perhaps what some of their opponents or perhaps new Christians might still be dealing with um, when Paul is writing this. We know that there were Jew and Gentile divisions like in just about every place, but here it was very pronounced, Acts 19 and verse 34, there was a great riot in the city, and this time it was the, the Gentiles who were riding against the Jews. Uh, so we know that the Jew-Gentile rift is very prominent, especially in this city, and Paul's going to address that specifically and highlight it in chapter 2 and 3. Uh, we also know that there are some vindictive enemies, some idolaters in Acts 19, verse 27. They're the ones that stirred up the crowd initially because they were jealous and afraid that they would lose their business, and so they're fighting uh, against them. Uh, we also know, according to Acts 20 and verse 30, Paul anticipates that there are going to be some false teachers to come and to try to tear them apart. And even whenever we get to Jesus' own uh, letter to them in the book of Revelation, he has some things uh, uh, to chastise them for in leaving behind some of the true ways of the doctrine. So Paul is writing this to address some of those issues and perhaps some new ones. Uh, the letter that he writes is applicable to everywhere, though. Uh, this is uh, These are issues that every Christian, every church uh, needs to be aware of, needs to uh, take to heart. So let's think about the summary. Uh, if we're to summarize the book, just kind of working our way from beginning to end, I might do it in such a way as this, that God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be unified, ready to combat our adversary. And that really encapsulates the whole of what we read here. So a little bit deeper here. God saved us in, in chapter one through his grace by sending both Jesus and the spirit of promise uh, to redeem us and to resurrect us from our old ways. All right. So chapter two, once we've been made alive again, and we humbly leave our lustful and divisive and petty ways, and we hold to the power of God, uh, then we are built up as a church into the body of Christ. So, uh, as because of that, 
we cannot delve back into an old sinful lifestyle, and the ways that we conduct ourselves should be noticeably different. And so we must avoid the temptations to fit in uh, just to be carried away by the world's actions. So uh, chapter 4 and 5 are primarily about uh, making sure that we can hold ourselves holy uh, to a higher standard, being worthy of the, the calling, the walk that God has called us to. So we must be careful how we walk, and we should focus on giving our efforts uh, to building up each other instead of tearing down, as specifically noted at the end of chapter 4. So in chapter 5, also, we see that we should be submitting to one another. This is the um, the, the climax of, of what this looks like, what God's grace and mercy, uh, what his unity looks like. It's when we submit to each other as to the Lord for the sake of peace and love. Uh, So the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 is talking about the ways in which we submit to one another. And this fulfills everything that God wants us to do. So uh, whenever we do that, we are then equipped uh, with the armor of God, uh, which the Lord supplies, to combat and withstand the temptations that Satan throws at us. So if we want to resist the devil, if we want to stand strong, then we have to put on the armor of God. So you could argue, really, that the um, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 then are the first half of the book, and they argue for the the motivations and the reasons that we have. We have been saved. We have been saved uh, from our own sins. Uh, not of ourselves, it is the grace of God. And uh, because we have been saved and separated from our sins, we should remain aloof from them. And we should be unified with one another. We should hold to the power of God that works through us. And so chapter 3 is focuses on the power that God has and that God works within us. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 conclude the book and talk about how we are to walk. Um, so chapters 1, 2, and 3 are really talking about the, um, the strength that we need to walk, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the, uh, the application of that and how we, in fact, are to walk and keep ourselves aloof from the challenges that Satan throws our way. All right, so an outline of the book, we've just kind of covered that, but a more specific outline maybe by chapter here. Uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, like we mentioned before, the first half of the book, I would summarize by calling this the power of God. In all three chapters, the the emphasis, the heavy emphasis, is the power of God. Of course, uh, God's grace is highlighted in chapter 1, and this is part of God's power uh, through the resurrection at the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2 emphasizes God's people. We, being God's people, display the power of God. His power is uh, not just that he resurrected Jesus alone, but that he can resurrect us as well and change us, mold us uh, into the people that he wants us to be. This is according to his power and his grace that works within us. And uh, chapter 3, of course, God or Paul then applies this to the inner person, the inner man, uh, as it's noted later on in the chapter. Um, God doesn't just apply his power to Christians and the church as just a corporate body. He actually works within us each individually, and Paul highlights his own personal life and then talks about the way in which God can personally live in each one of us and accomplish great things in the inner man. That is uh, chapter 3 and verse 16 says. Um, So now that we have been properly you know, instructed, edified, and encouraged, he then enters into the second half, which is uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, which I would um, uh, summarize as God's worthy people. 
So he, he, his power saved us in the first half, but now we need to walk worthy of the calling that he's called us. Uh, and this is up to us to walk within, uh, walk in step uh, with the, uh, the grace that he has shown us. Uh, we are told, for instance, in chapter 2, uh, that he saved us in, in verse 10. Uh, for his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Uh, so that walking becomes a theme throughout the second half of the book. So chapters four, or chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 16, uh, the first half of chapter 4 I would group together and call uh, this section Unity. Uh, he's talking about unity in the faith, unity with each other, unity in our work. And then the second half of chapter 4 and into the first half of chapter 5 is blocked together by uh, sanctity, uh, by walking the holy life. Uh, so removing our old selves and applying uh, diligence to uh, walking in the light. And then in uh, uh, chapter 5, in the second half of chapter 5, and the first couple verses of chapter 6, uh, the the emphasis here is submission, uh, that we are submitting to each other. Even that little section there about uh, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is still related to being subject to one another. Grammatically, it's all tied together. And uh, then he goes into how uh, we are subject to one another each in the roles that we uh, that we fill. And then the last portion of the chapter, which talks about the armor of God, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through the rest of the letter, is talking about fortitude, strength. He says, put on the strength of God and the fullness of his might, uh, relying upon him uh, for what uh, we have to face and not our own strength. So let's uh, just kind of dig through uh, just a little bit closer into each of these chapters, each of these sections, and, uh, and note a couple more things here. Uh, chapter 1, we, we have to be impressed with God's grace and the plan that he has for grace uh, for us. Uh, he, he talks about the, the, the predestination that he has called us to and the, and the, the lavish uh, grace that he, is, he has given us in verse 8 with all his wisdom and insight. This is a plan uh, that he has created even before um, the, the world was corrupted. We talk about uh, going back to the foundation of the world in, in verse 4. This is God's plan from the very beginning. Uh, Jesus and the plan of the the resurrection and the spirit, uh, this is not plan B. I mean, this is the purpose and the plan that he's created uh, from the beginning. And it's God's power. Um, our choosing and adoption is solely for God's glory. This is not for our glory. Uh, this is not so that uh, we can feel good about ourselves. This is for the glory of God. Uh, of all things that God has made, both angels, uh, things in heaven and things on the earth, it is the plan of salvation that brings him the most glory. And uh, that, of course, is highlighted by Jesus, who is the agent by which we are saved. The entire plan of salvation um, was about adoption into God's family. Uh, and that we, we, we read about that. And so adoption happens through Jesus, who then came in the flesh so that we could be called brethren. Uh, we read about that in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, but uh, here, chapter 1 uh, primarily focuses on the grace that he has given us. And it's not due to our own righteousness. This is something that God has decided ahead of time that he would give grace, uh, that he would choose uh, Jesus uh, to then bring us into adoption. Uh, harmony with himself, and uh, all aspects of our election, as it's called, are funneled through Jesus. Uh, so every uh, 
point uh, that we might make about predestination really funnels through Jesus and uh, through uh, his act on the cross. And so all the stipulations of predestination that we uh, have or enjoy also apply to Jesus. Um, So uh, that'll become an important study um, in in the next lesson. Uh, But because of this, everything is to the praise of his glory. Uh, in verse 12, uh, this is the end of it all. The, the, the whole reason why Jesus came was to give glory to God, uh, specifically God the Father here, but all of Godhood is represented throughout uh, this letter and even in this chapter. Uh, God's plan granted grace, Jesus' grace provided salvation, and then we find that even the Holy Spirit is involved. Uh, his his redemption secures our inheritance. We, we read uh, that the Spirit is the one who actually gives life. Um, and so this is part of the gospel message as well. And all this is about bringing glory uh, to God. So we've, we see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of them play a role in our salvation. We find that the Father is establishing the plan and uh, what needs to happen. We find that Jesus is himself uh, being the the mediator, the the one who allows for adoption. As well, uh, the Spirit is the pledge in verse 14 of our inheritance, uh, so that uh, God uh, then in verse 17 then reveals his wisdom, uh, and this is even related to the Spirit of wisdom, uh, the revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. And uh, verse 20. He brought about the salvation through Christ when he raised him from the dead. So all three are present in our salvation, uh, in deciding the plan, in giving the grace, in dying on the cross, in revealing the will, and being the the security for our souls. Well, then we get to chapter 2 now, and uh, chapter 2 is is radically about this this transformation that occurs. We were, it begins in in, in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but... Uh, now you are made alive in verse 4. Um, he, is, he has loved you, and even though in verse 5 we were dead, he has made us alive together with Christ. Uh, so a transformation occurs for us whenever we are united with him. Back in chapter 1 and verse 13, we told that when we hear the message of truth, uh, having believed, we were sealed with uh, with the spirit of promise. And so uh, whenever our faith molds uh, our minds to the resurrection, and of course uh, we read about that as being baptism in other places, uh, but when this occurs, uh, we are transformed, we are a changed people. Uh, so prior to salvation, we're dead, and in our dead state, uh, one of the things worth noting here is that we have no hope for justifying our own souls. We can't save ourselves while we're dead. Uh, we only have hope in God's grace. And so that's why he emphasizes here, it is not by your works, this is by God's grace. Uh, Through grace, God sent Jesus, and through grace, he resurrected Jesus from the dead. And through grace, he allows us the chance to be resurrected again with him. This is is what Paul means by, by saying, by grace, you have been saved. This is not anything we could hope for or earn. Uh, When we are in our dead state, we're without any hope. Uh, And so that's why we require God's grace. Now, once that grace has come, once we have believed, and once we have been sealed, we must radically change our behavior. And so the end of chapter 2 actually talks about uh, our... the, the, the way in which we must be at one with each other when we normally would have been at odds with each other. The, the Jew and Gentile division that uh, was existing 
in Ephesus and indeed in, in most of the ancient world, uh, that was one of the toughest barriers to overcome. In the book of Acts uh, specifically, you can see that, you know, even the mere mention uh, or, or in even the Gospel of Luke when Jesus was preaching, even at his hometown in Nazareth, even the suggestion that God could possibly favor the Gentiles just caused a riot uh, to occur. And so, uh, the majesty of God's power is that his grace can allow for Jew and Gentile to coexist. He can allow both of them entrance into the kingdom. And so, he addresses the, uh, the Gentiles specifically at the end of chapter 2. says, you were excluded, but now God has brought you close. And you need to be at unity uh, with your Jewish brethren, and they need to be at unity with you. So we need to lay aside the differences of our culture, our race, our, our personal opinions and backgrounds, and we need to be bringing glory to God uh, by being one with each other. And of course, chapter 4, we'll talk about that just a little bit more. Uh, so the foundation for our salvation is in fact grace, but we have been created for, or we have been given grace and and made a new person for a purpose. And that in verse 10, of course, is uh, what we read earlier, that is uh, that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. So faith, grace, and works, they are not at odds with each other. They're perfectly harmonized in this text, and hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. So uh, God achieves peace uh, through the gospel by abolishing in verse uh, 15 by abolishing his in his flesh uh, that is on the cross he abolishes the law he abolishes uh, the the Gentile way as well and, and he reconciles them in verse 16 both in one body to God if we're going to be at peace with one another if we want to suggest world peace then it's got to start with the gospel we got to be at peace with God first uh, the God does not bring and, and achieve peace and unity by just laying aside uh, who you are and he said, well, you have to just get over yourself and uh, start doing things that other people like. Uh, that's not really the way we achieve peace. We achieve peace by being uh, unified with God, by leaving aside the lustful selves, uh, the sin-tainted part of ourselves, being unified with God, and then when two people are at unity with God, they are, by definition, at unity with one another. If they are one body with the Lord, then they are one body with each other, and we'll, we'll read a little bit more about that in chapter 5. In chapter 3, he narrows down to things a little bit more personally here. He talks about his own story, and I think he does this so that uh, he, he wants the brethren at Ephesus to understand that the power of God can work in any of their lives. If, if, if God can work in his life, uh, then he, work, he can work with anybody. He calls himself here the least of all saints, and he has just been praising the high stature of the uh, the saints at Ephesus based on God's choosing of them, uh, that they have been elected, they have been predestined, they have been uh, justified, they have been raised up to glory, glorify God. And if, and if God can use Paul, the least of all, uh, then he can use anybody. I think that's, that's his pur uh, purpose in, in speaking in, in that way. And the greatest part of God's glory uh, throughout all this in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the greatest part of his glory is not, you know, the creation. And it's not even just uh, a, a corporate justification. It's that he can dwell 
in us, that he can dwell in each of us. He himself can live in us. And that's the beauty of the end of chapter 3. He highlights the power of God, but also that God lives in us through the Spirit in the inner man. In verse 17, that Christ, Christ may dwell in your hearts and that you can understand the love of God. So this power is seen in our lives individually. The power of God is personal. And it's personally witnessed. When we unite God's grace with our own faith, then we become powerful. We, are, we become able to do everything that God calls us to do. And this is not our power. This is God's power. Uh, that's why his power is highlighted throughout this section. God has demonstrated his grace and salvation so that his people can be empowered to walk worthy of the calling. Um so uh, th- that that is some of the special things to note. Notice also uh, one of the key verses that we often note in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, uh, this is God. You know, this is God's power far more. Everything that we can even imagine he can do and more. But notice where this happens at the end of verse 20. According to the power that works within us. Uh, God's power is is noted here as working within you, and this is the essence of God's power. Not only does he have the power to uh, abolish sin, but he has the power to change your life and to give you the strength uh, to work and to um, to be his workmanship. So chapter 4, as he begins uh, by saying you must walk worthy of the calling that he has called us, uh, he wants each of us to be involved with this process. Now, he's going to start addressing things as well for the the, well, the little bit more corporate sense of the church. Uh, the, the collection of saints as well is addressed throughout this section. And uh, th- so this is especially important for the churches living in the Jew and Gentile community because he's going to be talking about unity here. Um, the community of the Jew and Gentiles was... Uh, it was, it was a hot issue, and it, it took a lot for them to get over that. There's not really anything today that compares. Uh, we, we really do we ha- really are blessed uh, with living in a relatively um, uh, easygoing uh, culture where we realize that there are differences. Uh, nothing quite matches the level of what they had to deal with. And, uh, and, and, and so we can learn a lesson from them that if, if they could get over their legitimately, you know, uh, large issues um, that uh, stemmed from their religion and their upbringing and their culture and their race, uh, then we can get over every petty difference that we may have with our brethren today. Listen to a couple things uh, here in chapter 4 he says about unity. The uh, the oneness that he describes here, there is one, you know, Lord, one faith, one hope, etc. Uh, this oneness reflects upon the transformation that we claim. If we want to claim, yeah, we're transformed people, uh, we've been raised up with Christ, then we need to be at unity with each other. It, we, it does no good to claim a resurrection, claim salvation, and then start fighting with one another. Uh, but also this unity. Uh, that he describes here is not found in compromising the truth. You'll note uh, some of the things that he describes here, one faith, uh, one baptism, one Lord, one hope. Uh, these are uh, singularity, uh, points of singularity in our doctrine. Um, unity is not achieved by just accepting everybody and everything they teach. That's not the way we achieve unity. A lot of churches 
a lot of denominations want to say, well, let's just get together or all from the same place. Let's just have harmony and peace with one another. Well, that's great to say, but whenever it's it's achieved at the cost of, of giving up one faith, giving up one hope, giving up one Lord, one master, one authority, uh, once, once we are called to give up one in place of many, uh, then we're not holding ourselves to true unity. The only way to achieve unity is to unify our minds and our doctrines with the Lord's will, and then we will by necessity be at peace and unity with one another. God does not leave us without guidance. Uh, he gives us uh, gifts, he describes in uh, verse uh, 11, uh, really 7 through 11. Uh, he gives gifts uh, to his church to help them uh, be at peace with one another. And so these gifts come in the form of servants. And so we read, remember, about the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the elders or shepherds, uh, the teachers. And they are for equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith. And so all the people that work for and amongst the brethren, uh, the apostles or preachers or elders, they're doing so so that the church can achieve unity, so that we can be hard at work, and so that we can uh, build up each other into the body of Christ. But notice, they aren't the ones doing the work. They're just equipping the saints to do the work. Uh, every member of the Lord's body, uh, the church, is active in building up the whole here. In, in verse 16, that says that the Lord's body is built up by what every joint supplies. Every person within the, 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 the church, uh, within a local congregation, needs to be active, needs to see themselves as having a role to fill, uh, seeking out how they can build up the body of Christ. And so the ministers, the workers, they exist to help the saints do the work. Uh, they don't have the capacity to do all the work uh, just for themselves. So then, in the uh, latter half of chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 5 and verse 14, he describes how we can separate ourselves from the world. So, yes, we need to be building up the church, but that implies that we are going to hold ourselves separate from the world. If, uh, if the church and the ways of the members of the church just go back into the ways of the world and become stained again with the darkness, well, then God's church can't possibly be built up the way it should be. So, uh, as a unified and transformed people of God, we have to walk differently. And we have to recognize that our life, uh, our former life, is futile. Our former life was self-serving. Uh, we actually have true purpose now in Christ. And going back into the ways of the world, back into the temptations and sins that Satan is trying to offer us, uh, we, we are giving up true knowledge. We are giving up true purpose whenever we do that. And if we fall back into that pattern, we are told specifically that we, we end up grieving even the Holy Spirit who was given. The Holy Spirit is trying to testify to your sanctity. And, and if we find ourselves defiling our souls into the world, you can imagine the stress and the, the grief that that causes the Spirit who's trying to do everything to save us. Uh, by separating ourselves from our evil deeds— um, and even separating ourselves from evil persons, we have to be careful even about the company uh, that we keep in chapter 5. Uh, we, it's, it's not good enough simply to, in our own minds, try to think well. In chapter 5, we even have to be careful how we associate with other people because we must be light. 
and uh, we must let the light shine in the darkness. Uh, we are told in, in John, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1 and then chapter 3 that when Jesus came as the light, the world hated that because their deeds were exposed, and that's why they hated the darkness. Well, uh, Paul is drawing from that same theme here and says that uh, this world is darkness, and if you are shining in the darkness, you don't walk in it. Uh, that's just not the way you need to behave. So we got to be careful who we associate with and what we find ourselves doing. And uh, so uh, we must let our lights shine as brightly as we can. But we find that uh, uh, when we behave honorably, uh, then the, the darkness will reject us. It's, it's actually not our job to act, to act as judge over the world, to try simply to condemn them. Our job is simply to let the light shine, to spread the truth. Um, and when the truth becomes apparent, when their evil deeds become known, it, it's, it's going to stand as its own judgment. It's not up to us to judge them for them. It's, it's God who's going to end up doing that. Uh, we simply need to spread and shine the light to rise up, wake up from our sleep, and let our light shine in, ch in uh, chapter 5 and verse 14. So then uh, the second half of chapter 15, as we begin this section here of submission, submitting to one another is, is the primary theme here. So walking worthy of the Lord um, describes uh, how we treat one another. Um, if we are going to walk worthy of the Lord, we need to be treating each other properly. So we should be focused on building each other up. And uh, our concern is not on self, but on the needs of others. And so serving others is the will of the Lord. So uh, by focusing on their needs, that's how uh, part, at least, on how we submit to them. We submit to each other the way the Lord did. Uh, notice that in all these cases here, it's as to the Lord. Uh, Jesus is the center point to all this, and how we, you know, even in how we sing to one another, uh, is still wrapped around what the Lord wants and what the Lord likes. Um, and, uh, and, and we are singing, in fact, even to the Lord. But we are also being subject, notice in verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then all the points, whether it be wives or husbands, children's fathers, um, uh, servants or masters, everything is uh, centered around as to the Lord. And uh, knowing that the Lord is present is going to change and impact uh, how we are behaving with one another. So we can follow his pattern. Uh, Jesus submitted to humanity for the purpose of purifying the church, and we read about that uh, whenever he describes um, uh, Jesus loving the church, giving himself up for her, and uh, so we served, uh, he served rather our needs. Uh, primarily, he served our need to be purified from our sins, and so we can follow that pattern by submitting to those who have, number one, roles of authority over us, but even more than that, by giving up our wants to build their needs. Uh, even Jesus, who is the head of the church, serves the church uh, by giving itself, giving himself up to purify us. Uh, and that is what we truly need. So uh, whether or not we are in a position or a role of authority or not, our goal is still uh, to serve and to give ourselves up for them like Christ did. And so in doing so, then uh, that's how we help create the holy and pure atmosphere that God wants for all of his people. So chapter 6, uh, in the last portion here of this book, um, letter in verse 10 through 24, the adversary, that is the Satan, is of course this whole time fighting to overcome us. See, he's just avidly trying to pull us away, uh, 
make us fight with one another. And if we rely on our own strength, then we're going to be subdued. He's a powerful enemy. But if we instead put on the armor that God supplies according to the strength that he has, then we can remain firm in our faith. We can remain pure in our thoughts and our deed, and we can remain unified with our brethren. Uh, the armor that he provides us is spiritual, and we cannot fight the most important battle uh, if we are focused on the flesh. Uh, we need to be focused on the Spirit, so that's why he gives us and reminds us of the elements of the Spirit uh, to help draw our minds back to him. But even more than that, you'll also notice this focus on prayer uh, in verse 18 and 19. And so we cannot hope to accomplish all this just by ourselves, and so prayer is a way that we are petitioning God to be the primary force uh, in, in our walk. Uh, we are asking and requesting assistance. Uh, we are relying on him. Prayer is consistently a sign of humility. Uh, whenever we approach God, we are humbly acknowledging that we are weak. He is strong. He can supply what we cannot give ourselves, and we are going to him uh, to help us through this walk. And so it is um, in, in asking for these prayers and in praying for others uh, we can assist even each other in the walk of holiness. Uh, in, in verse uh, 19, he says, pray on my behalf. And he says at the end of verse 18, pray on behalf of all the saints. This is something we can do to help each other uh, through prayer. We can assist uh, even in the search for others who can join us. Notice what he asks for prayer in verse 19, that others, that I can make known the mystery of Christ, implying that others can in fact be um, uh, converted and join us in this battle. So these are some of the primary themes uh, noted through the um, letter of uh, Ephesians. Uh, we thank you for listening. The, you know, this has been a little bit of a longer podcast because we kind of surveyed the entire book. But uh, if, if you come back and study with us, we'll be uh, pursuing each section individually. And uh, uh, hopefully we can draw out what the Holy Spirit would like for us to realize. Thank you for listening, and you can find more at stanleyavenuecoc.org.